As we continue looking at uh, the issue of authority in the church and really in our lives, um, we want to appreciate some, some things that um, perhaps that over time we've been reticent to bring up again and again. Um, and really, when we come to things like this, uh, just... I think it's important that we recognize that history does matter. Most people will say that, you know, you know, these things happened such a long time ago. Why, why does it matter now? And I just really w- want to start this by considering um, uh, would have had up there on the PowerPoint uh, sign that says Church of Christ. And uh, when we go around, we travel around. Uh, we need to recognize that. Just because a church building has the name Church of Christ in front of it does not mean that you're going to get the same thing everywhere you you go. You'll find even in denominations, you'll often find going to a quote-unquote United Methodist Church or a Baptist Church, uh, there's going to be right up to where it needed to be, so that's good. Um, There's going to be a distinction even among some of those churches. I was told by... A fella uh, once that, you know, the, the main convention, the main homosexuals, but we don't at our local United Methodist Church. So you even have those distinctions there. But the, 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 the misunderstanding in our day and age is indeed that the Church of Christ is just another denomination, right? Uh, we just have the same goal, same thoughts. But those uh, who know that there, there is, a, a, and I'd like for us to dis- Often we'll label certain congregations as liberal or conservative, but misuse of those terms. Because in the Bible, of course, we find that we're told in the scriptures to be liberal in some ways, with our giving, our time, our effort. God commands us to be liberal. And we're shown in the scriptures to be conservative with our fulfillments, our desires, and our entertainment. So we want to be careful that we don't use uh, labels that will be inconsistent or not properly uh, descriptive. Uh, but we are we need to know what we're discussing. There's nothing wrong with labels themselves. It depends on how and why we're using them. So if I'm using the term liberal in a pejorative term to describe a congregation in a negative light, intentionally to just simply cast a bad feeling about them, then I'm not using that right. But again, if we want to use the term liberal, we can, but I do think that the, the institutional term is a little bit more apt. Looking up institutionalism or institutional on Google is not going to find any references, at least not immediately, concerning the church. You will not find anything on there immediately concerning this. So I think br- primarily this is a term that's being used among uh, uh, more or less our <coughs> background, those from our So it's difficult for sometimes in the ways that we use it. But what we want to recognize and see as we look at authority and institutionalism in the church is that really, here's a good definition for an institution. An organization, establishment, foundation, society, the like, devoted to the promotion of a particular cause or program, especially one of a public, educational, or charitable character. And so when we say a congregation is institutional, We simply mean that this congregation that we're talking about uh, supports institutions outside of the local church itself. Uh, Whether they be orphan homes, whether they be 
charities that they donate to uh, uh, from the church treasury itself. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that distinguishing factor as well as we continue on through this. Um, But we do want to continue on and think about this. The question that some might come up, would some might bring up, is why does this matter? Who cares? Both wearing the same uh, name. You both believe that Jesus is the Christ. Uh, many churches of Christ still believe that baptism is the only way, you know, really that immersion baptism is required to be saved. So what's the big deal? What's the big point? We also want to discuss how does God show his approval. We've discussed that uh, to some degree over the past couple of weeks, but we sort of want to uh, restate that and see that together. And uh, we want to ask, what do institutional brethren say? And uh, I hope not to be too much of a disappointment there, because frankly, there's not a whole lot of conversation going on. Uh, there has been in the past couple of years a couple going on, and a little bit more about that, feel free to ask me about the institutional brethren say. And then finally, we want to discuss in Scripture the difference between the church and the individual. We need to discuss and, and understand that distinction, because I believe that's the heart of what we're dealing with in terms of this divide. So why does this matter? Well, we see a major divide among churches of Christ that stretches back to the trials that brethren faced in the 50s and 60s. Now, this isn't the first division that brethren have had to face in the past 200 years. You'll go back farther than that to the mid-1800s, to the Disciples of Christ and that whole missionary, uh, missionary society uh, controversy. And you can look at the history of that and how Alexander Campbell, uh, one of the people that supposedly founded the Restoration Movement, which, by the way, I don't believe that that is really uh, as important as people say, believe it or not. I think Campbell and Stone and their work was good, but that did not establish the church as we have it today. And in fact, we can go farther back than that and see uh, traces of the kingdom all throughout time, stretching all the way back to the, to the beginning. I'm not talking about the Catholic Church. Uh, but again, we don't have time to go into that right now. But uh, our immediate division really took place between the 50s and 60s, and to some degree in the 40s. But uh, So this matters uh, because this is what people will sometimes say. Uh, well, let me take a step back here too. What we find after World War II, brethren began to raise objections to many practices that were forming among churches of Christ. The fact that as churches of Christ, we do not have a central organization. We do not have a central uh, convention or a council or a code or anything that governs what all the churches do. That means that there were many churches in the 40s uh, that, that began to take up practices that uh, they thought were good. Take, you know, let's take some money out of this treasury, use it toward an orphan's home. Let's uh, start supporting colleges and things like that. They began organizing missionary societies, giving to orphanages, supporting colleges from the treasury. And there were brethren, even during this time, that uh, began to object over the course of the late 40s and throughout the 50s. And, uh, but what we find is, according to those who objected, at least in my experience, the work itself was not the issue. Uh, giving to orphan homes, uh, supporting colleges, that was not in itself bad. But the, it all came down to how one accomplished uh, the work. Preachers who offered to give individually to orphan homes instead of out of the treasury were fired from their positions. Meetings were canceled. Uh, I've even heard stories from uh, my 
uh, Papa and Granny that, that people would change the locks on the church buildings just to keep people from worshiping together. So things like this, brethren who sought a peaceful resolution by imploring their brethren to give up their liberty for the sake of fellowship were slandered or ignored. Um, now, some people will say that the divisions of the 50s and 60s, just, this just happened because some conservative preachers wanted to have their way, and both sides made mistakes. And I will agree on that point. Both sides made mistakes. And I will say that in any issue that we have, sides will make attitude mistakes, will harbor bad feelings sometimes, okay? You know what? We work through those. The fact is, some, a statement like that shows that you don't understand what truly happened. Brethren on both sides of this issue were treated terribly, but I'll quote uh, Brother Ed Bragwell here, no one has a monopoly on attitudes. Right? Just because I have a bad attitude, that does not mean that what I'm saying is right or that it's wrong. Just because someone has a bad attitude about this issue doesn't change that in this particular case there was a right and there was a wrong. And I believe we can see that through Scripture. Some will say, well, this was an issue for white people. Uh, you know, and this has nothing to do with people of color. And I've, I've, I've heard that stated before. This is just a white man's issue. And let me say clearly about that, no matter of biblical truth is a white or a black issue. It's biblical truth. And it doesn't matter what, where we come from that we need to recognize that truth and appreciate that truth. Again, some people say, well, it's so far in the past, it doesn't really matter now anyway. Uh, who really even cares about this? And he, In fact, you can find quotes from the late 60s and 70s of brethren on the institutional side saying, well, the antis, they're going to fade away. They're going to die on the vine. There's no, no problem there. And... Uh, I think it was Steve Wolfgang that in a, in a recent meeting um, a couple of years ago, uh, well, no, it wasn't Steve Wolfgang, it was someone else, but anyway, said more or less that, hey, we're still here. <laughs> we're still thriving, okay? And uh, in fact, believe it or not, the divisions that are happening today, the brethren that we are losing to progressive Christianity slash grace, unity, Calvinism, whatever you want to call it today, they all stem from the same bitter root that fuels the institutional mindset. And that is a rejection of the authority of God as communicated within the scriptures. Now, there are brethren who will be in these institutional churches that will accept the basic building blocks of what we're discussing today in terms of authority. They will accept it. They understand that. And, but the problem is they're not willing to apply it completely and consistently. And so when we're looking at this, we, it matters because if we fail to learn the lessons of the past, we will make the same mistakes tomorrow. And in fact, when we consider what's going on today, from what I understand, uh, it seems like many of the institutional congregations have lost many more people over progressive Christianity than non-institutional congregations. I don't know that for sure. That's probably more speculation. That's the speculation of one of the fellows who heads up the Gospel Advocate magazine, from what I understand. So, regardless of that, we really want to recognize that this, this does matter. And the fact is, some brethren simply do not view the Bible and the church in the same ways. And we need to recognize that and be realistic about this. Think about these questions. What's the purpose of the church? 
What's the work of the church upon the earth? Collection of physical congregations or simply all believers everywhere? That's a distinction. And we need to be able to identify as a sin or must we rightly divide the truth and judge or discern our own actions upon that standard? The answers that we provide to these questions really come out of how we view the scriptures and how we view God's authority. And I believe that brethren are going to answer these questions in wildly different ways. If you were just to take a poll of every person who claims to be uh, a Christian who goes to a place called Church of Christ. So we want to look at this and consider this. How does God show his approval? How does this occur? We need to recognize the various ways that God shows the approval of his, uh, his approval of our actions in the scripture. Now, I frame this with the sense of how does God communicate? How does he tell us what he wants? And uh, whatever names you wish to use to describe this, you can use it, use whatever way you want, really. Um, but the big thing is that we understand these are principles by which all language is understood. This is how God communicates to us, and this is how we, we communicate with each other. Uh, again, what we find is a direct command. You could say God told it. God's commands are to be heeded. Acts 2.38, repent and be baptized. That's, that's a command of God that's very clear, and we find that in Scripture. We find approved examples. I would say that God showed it. When an example is recorded in Scriptures with God's approval, we know that that's the action that is needed. And uh, that action may be followed with a clear conscience. Uh, look at 1 Peter 2. Peter writes, For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps. Really, we could stop right there, couldn't we? But you find 1 Corinthians 11, 1, Imitate me as I imitate Christ. In Acts 20, verse 7, we Paul go, you see Paul going to Troas to assemble with the brethren. We find that example of the brethren assembling on the first day of the week to break bread. And so those are the examples that we follow because Scripture shows us that these examples are indeed to be followed. And they are indeed binding in God's authority. And then we have what we would call maybe an inescapable conclusion. You could say that God implied it. As some describe this as necessary inference. When there's only one possible conclusion from Scripture, that's what we're talking about, one possible conclusion, then it's to be followed as God's will. And we need to keep in mind there's a major difference between a possible conclusion and an inescapable one. We can come to possible conclusions in Scripture, can't we? Well, we see this preacher doing this at this time. Or we see this uh, apostle doing this at this time. Well, okay, what do we conclude from that? Uh, does that mean that we necessarily have to do it that way? Or is that simply how that person did it at that time in that way? We need to be willing to answer these questions. Matthew 3.16 tells us, you know, basically, this is an inescapable, excuse me, an inescapable conclusion. If Jesus came up out of the water, then he must have gone down into the water. Mark 12, when we read that, we, we remember when Jesus is talking to the Sadducees in Mark 12, in verses 26 and 27, that he used the fact that God said, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He was implying that God is the God of the living, not the God of the dead. And I'll tell you, I don't think that we, without that passage, I don't think we would be able to pick up on that. Jesus makes it clear for us, doesn't he? And he made it clear for the Sadducees at that time. 
So the implications of these things. These three aspects involve the very core of our thinking as creatures of reason and logic. And when we abandon this, we will fill this void with something else. Because, friends, this is how we talk. This is how we communicate. This is, this is the way that we live our lives. Every action we take in life revolves around something we were told, something we were shown an example, or something that was implied in a situation. You think about our families. Children are told what to do from early on, but over time, they learn from examples in their family. Maybe positive, maybe negative examples they learn from. But they learn from those examples, and it, it molds them and shapes them. And we're usually able to pick up on some implied truths concerning a family. Some things that maybe we realize, well, he doesn't really like that. Not because he said that, but because we can tell that he doesn't, right? Uh, in school, students are told where to go, what to read, uh, which tests to take. They learn from the example of their teachers, their classmates. Implications can be made given the social makeup of the school and all these different things. You think about our careers, our work. Employees are told what to do and how often. They're usually given training and they learn from example the implication or the whim of a boss or a manager. How powerful can that be? How important can that be to recognize that, hey, I can tell my boss doesn't like it when I do it this way. And so I'm going to do it this other way. Right? So it isn't that God has left us with no way to know how to please him. God revealed his will, determined upon the very way he created us to think. And so this is why we hold to these things. If there's some other way to understand what God wants us to do, let's look at it. But you know what? We can't say it, we can't use an example of it, and we can't imply it. Because if we abandon this, we're abandoning our thinking, we're abandoning our reason. And so let's, let's remember that and understand that. Now, again, we want to see that when the Bible authorizes, it authorizes in two ways. I know we've already discussed this, but, you know, uh, for example, when we find people, you know, the command to be baptized, that's a general authority, isn't it? That's a general command. And so that requires a place that has enough water. And this can be anywhere that water is, right? And then we have specific authority. When God specifies an action, we are not at liberty to substitute anything else. God has a general command, and then he has a specific command. God specified that Christians use unleavened bread and fruit of the vine for the Lord's Supper. Would it be okay for us to uh, 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 substitute ham sandwiches and maybe Sprites or you know soft drinks, something like that? No, that wouldn't make any sense because that's not what God has specified to be used for the Lord's Supper. So again, I don't want to deal too, too long with that, but we, we need to recognize this and keep this in mind. Now, authority is not about what defi defining what sin is. Rather, authority is about defining what righteousness is. In Acts 2 and verse 42, they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, the positive declarations, what to do, and to be sure they were pleasing to God. In Acts 15, we find the controversy over those who are teaching that Christians must be circumcised. And we recognize that, that they're saying in that letter that they, that they uh, write to those Christians that we didn't command this to you. We gave you no such command. 
Again, someone might say, well, what? You didn't say we didn't say we couldn't teach it. It didn't take away from our faith in Christ. Simply added something. Well, again, the emphasis in that passage is there was no such commandment. Hebrews seven and verse eleven through fourteen. The whole point of that passage is that the silence of the Old Testament regarding anyone other than the tribe of Levi serving as a priest expressly forbade that from happening under the Old Testament, under the Moses' law. As a result, if Christ was a priest, the old law had to be abolished. Because Jesus is a priest, the old law had to be uh, taken away. Silence did not permit the law of Moses to continue. And it permitted for Christ to be our high priest. So again, we get into this question of, does silence permit or does silence prohibit? I think it can do both, given the context of the passage. We've got to look and see what's being uh, said. And, and that's really what it's about. What, what's being shown to us. And then we use that to help us understand that truth. Second John 9, Whoever transgresseth and abideth not in the doctrine of Christ hath not God. He that abideth in the doctrine of Christ, he hath both the Father and the Son. Teachings are positive declarations. We are expected to abide in what has been declared, not in what not has been declared. Someone again says, the Bible doesn't say we can't do it. Well, if we were requiring God to list everything we couldn't do, we wouldn't be able to study the Bible. To know all the things that we're supposed to, I mean, you can't list it. Think of all the things that we're not supposed to do. Can you list it? So, let's have the sense of what Balaam said in Numbers 24, 13. If Balak would give me his house full of silver and gold, I cannot go beyond the commandment of the Lord to do either good or bad of mine own mind. What the Lord saith, that will I speak. And I know Balaam wasn't really a good guy in the end. But think about that thought just by itself. Take, take that thought out of that story. And let's understand, that's a good thought. That's really how we need to be living. Well, we're going to be moving quickly now. What do institutional brethren say? What, what do we find them saying, uh, and I say mod, in modern ways these days? Uh, not much. <laughs> and again, I hate to be disappointing in that. You have to dig back to see the arguments that brethren were making in the 50s and the 60s. Really, ever since then, any kind of thing, I, I saw... Uh, uh, I found in scope of this a, a lesson that someone had preached back in 2015. And it was just basically an outline about how antiism is wrong. And more or less, this basically saying that it's, it's just like the Pharisees. Uh, and did not answer the questions properly and just, you know, really just wasn't much to it. And so we have to kind of dig back. Um, these days, I would say institutions are nearly universally accepted among what I would call, quote-unquote, mainline churches of Christ. There's no question about that. Of course we're going to be supporting this. Of course we're going to be supporting that. Uh, it's, you know, just for example with, with colleges, it's nearly universally accepted for colleges like Harding, Faulkner University, Freed Hardeman University, Pepperdine, all of these to depend upon income from the treasuries of multiple churches. That started a long time ago, and it continues there's a quote by Batsel Baxter, um, which, by the way, I should—I I meant to mention this too. Most of the current generations, I believe, and again, I may be wrong in this, seem to be ignorant of the causes or consequences of these divisions. I'll just say from my own experience, I was fairly ignorant about mainline or institutional churches of Christ before I started dating Sharon. I really didn't have an idea that even among those churches of Christ— 
they're what they think of as liberal and conservative. So there are those among those churches that we were, uh, you know, where they'll have a certain standard. They have a limit, but of course, if you talk to them, it doesn't really make a whole lot, lot of logic with, with, it, with that limit. Uh, basically, it's the sense of we can have a fellowship hall, but having a gym is going too far, which frankly just doesn't make a whole bunch of sense when you really get down to the scriptures and understand this. And we'll, we'll discuss that a little bit more in just a moment. But uh, here's a quote by Basil Baxter. It's my conviction that the schools need to be dependent upon the churches for their financial lifeblood in order for the schools to remain, focus on this, to remain principles the Bible teaches. Okay? Let's think about Faulkner. Let's think about Pepperdine. Let's think about some of these universities. And, I mean, Abilene Christian, you know, down in Texas. Has this practically worked out? Have they been permanently loyal to the goals and principles the Bible teaches? Those of us who are students of the Bible, we can just take a glance at some of these colleges. We can see plainly that is. So here's a man who was trying to say back in 1964 that we need to be supporting the schools. We need to be supporting the colleges. There's a point that Cecil Willis makes, and I've got a quote in here, but I didn't really have time to, to paste up here. But he makes a point in Truth Magazine back in 1958. And what he's saying is that the orphan home issue, churches supporting orphan homes from the treasury, was a gateway issue in order to allow churches to support schools and other institutions as well. And the reason was they had no scripture for supporting the colleges. They had no scripture, for, but they had scripture for orphans. And so they hammered on that. And those who opposed were called orphan haters. Those who were opposed were saying, well, you don't want to help these people. You don't want to do this. You want to do that. We need to understand that we, that we will continue to oppose these sorts of mindsets. And we will be labeled in certain ways because of that. Uh, another statement that he makes in that same uh, pamphlet, the orphan home and the Christian school must stand or fall together. So I think that proves it without a doubt, that that's, that's kind of what they were doing, right? This and other subjects resulted in the yellow tag of quarantine being advised and even stressed. That yellow tag of quarantine was sort of a wartime kind of, of phrase. And it was the gospel advocate that basically communicated that out to churches. Anyone who opposes these practices, you don't, you don't invite them to meetings, you don't hire them as preachers, you cut them off, essentially is what was being said. And... Uh, so that's, that's really how a lot of that ironed out. Now, someone might look at this and say, well, this is, you're kind of biased, Stephen. Well, yeah, but you know what? I didn't understand completely the issue, and Sharon didn't understand completely the issue. And so what's happened then? Why has this been allowed to just die off? And I, I would say, generally, Sharon's told me that she never heard anything about this growing up. The most she heard about it is, oh, well, auntie's, don't have water fountains in their buildings. She came to East Columbus, you know, visiting me one time. She saw the fount water fountains. Okay, yeah, I'm good. <laughs> saw the water fountain. But it's deeper than that, isn't it? It's deeper than that. So, regardless of how well-intentioned uh, these considerations might have been, it's important for us to recognize two things. The supporters of these concepts really had no scripture to prove their position was authorized. This is still the same case today uh, because we have the same Bible they had. And those who objected to this practice were labeled anti-school or anti-college, anti-orphans. That's where that term antis came from. Are you an anti? Well, okay, uh, I'm anti-sin. 
<laughs> you know, um, I, I visited with Bryant Bales, uh, uh, institutional place, uh, institutional church close to Birmingham once, and they were having a gospel meeting. And the fellow up there was preaching. The title of the lesson was The All-Sufficiency of the Church. I'm pretty sure that was the title. And uh, he spent all of his time talking about the Catholics and the Muslims and you know this and that and this and that. Never a word about the brotherhood. Never a word about what churches of Christ are struggling with. And I couldn't help myself. I hung around and I asked him, like, okay, church is all sufficient. Why do I see over on that bulletin board over there? Why do I see that this church here is contributing to things that are outside of the church? You know, why did I smell, when I came in, why did I smell some food cooking? Okay? And uh, I tell you what, he almost just about blew up at me. He said, oh, you... You subscribe to, to Roy Cogdell, don't you? You know who Roy Cogdell is, huh? Yeah, you should. He started your whole movement. And I said, well, I wouldn't say that, sir. But, <laughs> you know, and listen, I was like, I think I was maybe 28, 29 at the time. This guy was in his 60s, blowing up at a kid, okay? And then the local preacher came out and just was fuming, just, you know, uh, when we left the building, he came out and just, you attacked that brother, you know, and I'm not trying to paint people in a particular way, any kind of communication, okay? I was just asking some questions. I wasn't trying to be facetious or try to... So that's part of the problem, right? There are hard feelings with those people that sort of live through those years. And I think part of what's happened is that they've just kind of gone beyond it. They don't really want to think about it too much. But we do need to... And again, I think this is the core of it. Uh, turn to Matthew 18. We're going to look at this and a couple of passages and the lesson will be yours. Matthew 18. And I believe these are just some simple considerations to show us that the church, as it uh, works and as it does what it needs to do, is indeed distinct from the individuals within that church. So Matthew 18 and verse 15. Moreover, if your brother sins against you, Jesus says, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears it, you've gained your brother. But if you will not hear, take with you one or two more, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. Think about the responsibilities given by Jesus in each step of this way. In verse 15, the individual is supposed to act. But there's no church action yet, right? In verse 16, two or three individuals act. But there's still no church action. Verse 17, the church still doesn't really take any... I think there is maybe an implied action here. But the whole main point is that here's the individual called upon to do something. And this is why we make the point, and this is why I make the point, that fellowship with those who have fallen away, that is primarily an individual responsibility. Some people base their fellowship upon others based upon what the church does or says. But that's, that's not always the case. <clears throat> God is upon, uh, calling upon us as individuals to do the right thing. And so what we need to recognize when one individual acts or even a group acts, this does not constitute church action, especially in this passage. Uh, if you look at 1 Timothy 5.16, uh, we can see the distinctions here. 
1 Timothy 5.16 If any believing man or woman has widows, let them relieve them, and do not let the church be burdened, that it may relieve those who are really widows. Okay, I think, I think it's plain there. That if you can take care of your family, you take care of your family. Do not let the church be burdened. If the individual is the church, then why is he making this distinction? Acts chapter 5 and verse 4. And we don't have to necessarily read that, but you remember Ananias and Sapphira, Peter says, while it was yours, you had control over that money. And so money that an individual has in his possession is under his control and his oversight until what point? what we just did a little bit ago, right? Until he gives that money to the local church. And then you use it in the ways that God says to use it for the local church. Think about uh, a Christian who's a member of a a charitable organization or an organization in town, some kind of civic group, right? Uh, And they're helping the poor in some particular case, you know? You got two people looking at that and one person says, oh, well, that's a Christian. So that's the church helping the poor. And then the other person says, no, 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 that's, that's the Lions Club or something, you know, whatever it is, helping the poor. Both of those people are wrong. That's a Christian, an individual Christian helping the poor. That's all it is. And in fact, what you find is that uh, this is how these help groups like United Way and other things, that's how they behave. You don't induct yourself into the United Way to go and help people. You just show up at the event and you help people. They tell you where it is and tell you, know, give you everything you need to, to go and help. But, you know, think about this. What if two Christians committed adultery? Would that mean the church would be guilty of adultery? You know, denominations make the same mistake in John 15 when they want the branches to be particular denominations. The branches are individuals. So think about our God-given relationships, right? Uh, in Ephesians 6, 4, we find there are family responsibilities for the Christian. Even though we're talking about, you know, the fathers uh, don't provoke your children to wrath, but raise them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, uh, this includes uh, love and discipline, recreation, education, and shelter. All these things are involved in that. Galatians 6, verse 10. There are community responsibilities to give aid and help with benevolent works toward all men. And these involve all these different things. Romans 13. We recognize there are government responsibilities of Christians. Paying taxes, any positive influence toward righteousness with that government, whether we vote or whether we uh, have some sort of become some sort of delegate in a party or something like that, we can we can work toward those things in good ways if we want to. But you know that's really partially a responsibility uh, responsibility for the Christian. And then of course in Ephesians four and in Second Thessalonians three, there are economic responsibilities of the Christian. I need to find an honest way of earning money. Whether I work for an employee or whether I have my own business, uh, those are my responsibilities. So look at all this. Think about this. What if we fail to make a distinction? Because look at all this. Some people will even use Galatians 6.10, right? That's, that's the cherry picker verse that they'll have to say, well, yeah, we can do all this. We can help the poor we can do, with, with church treasury money. But the problem is the context of Galatians 6.10 shows that this is for the individual Christian. Now, if I fail to make a distinction, you know, again, the, the, uh, the reasoning we have is, well, anytime the individual acts, the church is acting. Are we prepared to say the church can do all of these things? K- 
can we expect the church to start up a business? I think it was in one of Wes Brown's lessons here years ago that he said, you know, if the church can uh, build a fellowship hall and ho- uh, hold common meals, then the church ought to just go ahead and start up a restaurant. Why not make money at it? And I agree with him. <laughs> Here's the thing. If I give all this up, if I say all of this is just, you know, you, church can do, you know, do all these things, the church the individual, guess what? I can't oppose the Catholic church. Okay. I can't oppose any kind of issue that I see out there in the religious world that I recognize as wrong and not according to the scriptures. If I embrace this thought that when the individual acts, the church acts, it's just the same thing, don't worry about it, I have no reason to oppose anything that any of these other groups want to do because I've given up my ability to do that through scripture. And at that point, it's just my opinion. (laughs) And, uh, and that really doesn't go too far. Sadly, false arguments are often used to justify pet projects of one generation or another, and they will be taken to their consistent conclusion by another generation. Again, the generation that said, okay, fellowship halls are okay, but gyms are going too far. Well, there was a church in, uh, I, I call it my hometown, but in Florence, that uh, went all the way from, you know, just having a normal building to, I think they spent like uh, $9 or $10 million, and this was back in like, you know, early 2000s. And this was a church of Christ, quote-unquote, at one time. And you know what they built last? They built their assembly hall last. They worked out a deal with the local Baptist church to uh, sell them their building. Well, they didn't get their assembly hall built in time, so they ended up paying rent to the Baptists to keep worshiping in their old assembly hall. You know, I don't tell stories like that. I don't tell things like that just to shame people. But to help us understand, there is a distinction here to be made. And if we're going to be God's people and understand what He wants, then we need to make sure that we step in the steps that He's given us to to go in. Uh, You know, I want us to just briefly look at a chart here. And you find two treasuries. Again, Acts 5, verse 4. The individual. How does he get his money? By honest labor. How does he oversee that? Who, who, who gets to determine how he spends that money? Well, he does. And who gets to determine you know, the use of that? Well, he's going to use it based on all these things that God has told him how to use it, Right? Well, the church is given these same things. We're shown this is a voluntary offering. The church gets money. Who gets to decide who, you know, how this money is used or how this money is is, uh, uh, divided out? Well, if you have elders, it's going to be the elders. If you don't have elders, the church does the best it can, right? Uh, And then how do we use it? Well, the Bible tells us the primary goal is to teach, teach and preach the gospel. Edify saints, preach to the lost. All that goes within it. And then you find uh, evidence that in the church that they were relieving needy saints with that as well. So, regardless what we see there, I think that helps us to sort of understand these things. And as we think about this further, and I'll quickly kind of finish up here, we need to remember that, that history does matter. Uh, We don't have to know everything about what happened in the 50s and 60s. We don't have to search through all the magazines and the editorials and the papers and things like that. 
But I think it's important that we get an understanding of what happened. There's a building downtown uh, that, that was the Columbus Church of Christ. Uh, that, that, not the building itself, but you know, where the Columbus Church of Christ met years and years ago. And there was a group that came out of that that formed a congregation over in East Columbus. And, uh, you know, these things are very local. These are not problems that some other people dealt with at some other time. We're living with what's left, right? And the wonderful thing about this is, if we're Christians, we're not limited to what the church in Ephesus did. We're not limited to what the church in Sardis did. You know why? Because those churches are gone. They, they either left the Lord or were destroyed or something to that effect. I don't know what happened to them. Churches are not, as far as the buildings, of course, and even as the local congregations, churches are not what's eternal. It is indeed the universal church that's eternal. And part of the problem, part of the core problem that we're dealing with is when someone wants to activate the universal church. Say every Christian everywhere needs to be doing these things. That's where apostasy comes from. So think about your life this morning. Think about how you're living. Think about your actions. And, uh, you know, knowing or not knowing this, I don't think is really going to interfere too much with your salvation unless you allow it to corrupt your actions in a sense where you fall away from what's true and what's right. Uh, Take out your psalm books to the song that's been selected. Have I truly surrendered everything to him? Ask yourself that question and think about these things. If you need to respond to the gospel, please do so while we stand and sing.